Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zetkovich of Zyla Floyd Zetkovich. Hello, Callum. Hello, Luke. How are you doing? Very good. We have, I've just about recovered from the excitement of Wagatha Christie. I know. It's quite a come down after the highs of wags and leaks and PR and football. And we, we're back in some ship finance territory now. We're, we're back to the, to the glamour of handy-sized bulk carriers. Yeah. The, the vessel's names are called the Courage and the Amethyst. So make of that what you will. The, the case, the case is called, uh, well, the case is between o, OCM Maritime, so Oak Tree Capital, um, entities and as the claimants and Courage Shipping and Amethyst Ventures as the defendants, also the appellants. This is a decision from the English commercial, no, sorry, it's a court of appeal decision from the commercial court handed down recently on the 29th of July, 2022. We have, uh, Lord Justice Miles giving the leading judgment here and the two other justices, Lord Justice Underhill and Lord Justice Newey both agree unanimous decision of the court of appeal. I, look, I think it raises some interesting points. This one, Callum, or, although in some ways perhaps more straightforward than some of the other cases we've, we've dealt with recently. Yeah. And I, I think so we'll get, we'll get into the background as we always do, but it seemed to me that this was a case that the, the charterers in this case, the, the charterers and would be buyers of the vessel were very unhappy to have lost it first instance. I noticed that they changed counsel and they changed solicitors and then lost again in the court of appeal. Um, Did, didn't change the result, did it ultimately? Didn't, didn't change the result ultimately. Um, and I can kind of, I can see their frustration in, in the, the, the result is quite harsh in, mm. in terms of the context of the deal that they'd, that they'd struck. The result is, is a harsh one, but it's, I guess, as with any harsh decision, there's, there's a, a salient lesson, which is, you know, be very careful in what you agree. Well, isn't that the point? The, the point here with this case is as I read it or, to, you know, reading behind the decision, if you like, that the parties may have had a commercial deal or may have thought they had a commercial deal, at least they, the charters thought they had a commercial deal, but that's not what the contract stated. The contract, you know, ultimately when I read it, the, the subject clause, we're going to get into it um, in a moment. It seems pretty straightforward. I don't think it's a, it's a difficult construction here at all. And the Court of Appeal had no difficulties going through um, Sandra Smith, the judge at first instance's decision, and highly commending it in, in most places. And I think it's just that, that case of you know, you've got to be really careful about what actually ends up written in your contract. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so maybe it's helpful just to kind of talk about the background to this contract. So yeah. We can, you know, as, as, as you said at the top, there are two, two vessels involved two uh, handy sized bulk carriers, the courage and the amethyst and the, each of these contracts is a, is a bare boat charter party. And I think it's important to distinguish the, the, the use and function of bare boat charter parties, particularly the sort of bare boat charter parties that are an issue here 
from a, a perhaps more quote unquote routine or normal time charge party or voyage charge party that that we might see a you know an off hire dispute under or a um or yeah issues over condition the these are they are charge parties but really they're financing documents mm. I think that's mm. something that comes through in the way that the you know this this judgment's decided but it's also it's an important thing to to appreciate at the outset and what what's happening here is that you essentially have a fund who are trying to end well they're they're entering into something which is akin to a loan arrangement and these the, the two parties one of whom the charterers are going to have the use of the ship and they're going to crew the ship and they're going to you know do all the things all the day-to-day -day operations with with owning a ship and then you have essentially the the finance the financiers where which is where the money's coming from and they're their role is to basically assist in buying this, these vessels. And the way they do that is they become the owners under these two bare boat charter parties. The, it looks as though the purchase price for the vessel was part paid by the charterers too. It looks like they I, think, about it, half. I think considerably, I think it was half, half of yeah, the purchase so price was paid by the charters for each of them, which is, is, is in large part why they so feel so aggrieved by the, the exactly. ultimate decision. And, and then they're paying off. The remainder of well, it, it looked as though they're basically paying off a certain amount of what is in effect of a loan to the to the owners, and the way the loan is structured is basically the owners buy the ship and the charterers pay them back for it over a long period of time. Um, mm. In this case, the charterers obviously pay it up front, pay quite a lot, and then it seemed as though, and you don't have the whole the whole charter obviously, but it seemed as though there's basically a balloon payment at the end. So at the end of this, these bare boat charter parties. Which were only about two years, if I remember correctly. The mm. um, the charters have the option basically to to buy out the ships from the owners. So it's it's structured as a charter party, but in effect, what you have is is a a loan by which the the charterers will eventually become the owners. And during the period of that loan, they're basically acting as the owners, save that they have this bare boat charter party arrangement. Yeah, yeah, and and what ultimately brought about the whole dispute was that. Mr. Abdul Jalil Malal, um, who was the legal and beneficial owner of the shares in the chartering companies, was designated by the United States authorities as a specially designated global terrorist. Not the kind of designation you uh, might want to receive, I dare say, no, Callum. It's not, a, um, it's not an accolade, is it? Not one to put on your LinkedIn. No, probably not. So that happened in June, that designation in June, 2021. And the, the, the owners considered that so that the listing of the ultimate beneficial owner as a, as a SDGT, as an event of default under the bare boat charter parties for the two vessels. And so they gave and that notice. Wording, just, just jumping in there, that, that wording, you know, the event of default. And the effects of these events of default is again akin to a loan. You know, under mm. a loan agreement, you typically see these events of default that allow the the financing party to wrap the whole thing up, and that's what we see here in this beverage charter party. Yeah, exactly. We're talking capital E, capital D. Uh, this is a, a defined term, event of default, and you've got you to look to the contract to see what that means, as as we'll get into in a minute. But so then the owners went on to give notice eight days later after the designation to terminate the charter parties and said that they would repossess the vessels at the next ports of call. 
but the charterers disputed that and disputed their right, uh, as in owner's right, to repossess. In the event, Otis succeeded in taking possession of the Amethyst in September, start of September in uh, Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. But as to the other vessel, the courage the charter has caused it to proceed into Syrian waters. And the vessel remains there, or at least as at the time of this decision, and out of owner's reach. So we, we then have this dispute that comes on to to determine really whether the owners had an entitlement to take possession of the vessels. There was no dispute as to whether the designation itself resulted in an event of default, but it's more about what's, what's the consequence of that event of default? What could owners do? Did they have to give a certain notice making a demand for payment under the, under the charter parties, or could they just go ahead and repossess the vessels as they did? Yeah, exactly. And, and the reason I say at the start of this, that, you know, the charters were so furious that they've, that they lost this or appear to have been so furious they lost this is that they, you know, as, as we discussed, they've, they've put up half the cost of the ship. They've then entered into this bareboat charter arrangement where they've continued to make payments in basis every single day of hire, but in reality, monthly payments, repaying some of the amount that the charterers, uh, sorry, that the owners had, had kind of fronted by buying the ship and then suddenly somebody somebody's name gets put on this sanctions list uh gets designated as a, as a terrorist and the owners effectively the bank then say well thank you very much for paying everything that you've paid we're taking the ships now good night god bless yep and then at first instance uh we had justice smith as i mentioned before fired in favor of the owners and said that and uh, found that the owners were entitled to terminate charter parties and they did so lawfully and effectively by the notices on the 18th of june 2021 they were entitled to repossess uh the vessels and they'd been entitled to do that in respect of both ships and in respect of the amethyst they had in fact lawfully taken possession of that vessel the start of september and then there were a couple of other arguments that charters had run, you know, around seeking relief from forfeiture of the charter parties. And, um, the judge found at first instance that the charters precluded themselves from, uh, obtaining that type of relief from forfeiture because of their own misconduct in these proceedings and, you know, in relation to these proceedings and in any event. The judge found that it would not have been an appropriate case to grant that type of relief. And this decision, so that was the, the findings, you know, totally in favor of owners. They could keep the money that had been paid today and they got the ships. And the, this decision, uh, which was an appeal by the charters to the court of appeal, court of appeal basically went through these reasons, added some other additional reasons as to why, um, the appeal should be dismissed, which was dismissed and why the original decision was a good one. Yeah, exactly. And also they provided some comment on, on this idea about whether or not the, the, not really any clause, it's an interesting argument, the, the penalty clause argument is mm. what I'm referring to here, where, uh, yeah. the charter has said, you know, the effect of this is that it's a penalty. Um, and I found that part of the judgment quite interesting because I don't think the judge actually had to raise that because I think that point was dropped on appeal, but the judge did go into the question of whether or not, um, the contract as a whole created a penalty regime 
in circumstances where a charter has effectively lost all of their investment in the vessel because somebody was placed on the designated persons list uh, or the terrorist terrorist list. But uh, uh, there's some interesting stuff to go into there, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the case boiled down to, as we mentioned before, what, what, what rights did the owners have in the event of a default? And this was largely a construction question, you know, well, what did the various clauses here in the, in the charter party mean? And I don't think we need to go through all of them, but there's the termination clause, um, there's the repossession clause, but really the, the most critical clause, I, I think, unless you wanted to get into those ones, but I think the most critical clause is clause 46, which sets out what owners are entitled to do in the event of a default. And really there's a, there's a, a list of things that they're entitled to do. They're entitled to, you know, give a notice about the aggregate amount of the outstanding principal and the indemnity sum to be paid, which shall become immediately payable in the event of a termination um, situation. So that's one thing they can do. They can take any action at law under the relevant documents. Yeah, um, and that's just going back to that first one, again, this just draws this parallel between this document and a loan agreement. Basically, the first one mm. is, is your classic acceleration provision under a loan where the, the bank can effectively say you're you're in default, therefore, this is the amount that you owe us under the entire loan is now payable. And so in this situation, the, the owners under the bare boat, boat charterers who are effectively the financing party have, have that right if they want it. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and then the second point, sub two, is, is almost follow on from that point, and that is to take any action at law under the relevant documents to collect the full amount, as mentioned in the previous sub calls the acceleration clauses you describe it. So there's, there's kind of two subclauses there, which set out what owners may do. And then the third one, which is what they did here was unless the full amount has been paid in subclauses Roman one or two, as we just talked about, unless it's been fully paid in accordance with those two, the owners are able to retake the vessel under sub three. And then there are some, some other points here as well, but I think this is the, the real critical part of, of, of this construction issue is to, is to unpack that, um, owners have the ability to accelerate and, and make a demand for payment of sums. They're, they're entitled as a follow on from that to take action, to recover the full amount. And then it says here, and, or unless they've been paid fully under um, Roman one and two, they can then retake the vessel. And it makes it very clear in the opening to these various rights in, in this clause 46, that it says owners may at their option in brackets, but with no obligation. So to do close brackets. And I just, you know, when, when I read that without even going through the rest of the decision here, it seemed pretty clear to me that the way it's been drafted here is that owners had a pretty clear option as to whether they make the demand for payment of, of monies and, or they retake the vessel. So again, just looking at this from the, from the perspective as though it's a financing document, basically mm. you have two options. If you're the, if you're the owner slash financing party, one is acceleration and take all the money, in which case charters then keep the ship. Two is 
you enforce your rights against the collateral, which here is the ship. Effectively, that you know, owners yeah. have title to the ship and they can just say, well, actually, charterers, no thanks. And, and charterers' problem with this basically was, was that they, they, they couldn't comprehend that, that the owners were entitled to take the ship, i.e. take the collateral, but not give credit for the amount of money that they'd already received towards that. That feels like that, that was the, the point that caused them such consternation in this, in this arrangement, but it, but it comes down to the terms of the contract, right? This is the way that the parties chose to structure the deal. And this is the bargain they struck and the court is not going to say, well, actually we're going to deprive the owners, the financing party of a rights that, that they've been, that they're entitled to just because it now, you know, seems like it's unfair on charters. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. I, I just, I, I really struggle to see a, a different interpretation of, of these provisions and had the parties wanted to set up or they had agreed to set it up in a way as to give credit that could have been drafted in relatively easily. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Re- or, relatively easily. It, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a difficult provision to, to make clear. And we have seen many financing documents that would do exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, 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 uh, you know, as charters tried to argue, they effectively said, well, you have to first give us this notice. So we have the option to buy you out of the contract and the judge looked at this in quite a good way. I think in a way which is, which is helpful for any time that, that there's a construction question, which is if, if you're putting forward a construction argument as, as charters were here saying, you know, this clause should be read in a way where, where owners are obliged to, to send us the, the effectively the acceleration notice and give us the opportunity to, to buy out the contract. Well, if you read the whole clause in that light, then does the rest of it make sense? And the judge did that and basically said, well, no, it doesn't because the clause quite clearly says that the owners can at their option, but with no obligation to do any of these things, do each of the things which is listed. And what charters were effectively saying would cut across that because the owners would not have the option and, and in fact would have an obligation to do, to do certain things under this clause. So when you're trying to have a, I guess, a slightly creative construction argument, it makes sense to kind of go back through and reread the entirety of the contract in light of your creative constructive argument to see whether the rest of the contract actually makes sense. In this case, it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And look, the, the, the court here ultimately held that the wording in clause 46 itself made clear that the owner has an option, but not an obligation to serve a notice under 46A1, you know, that, that being the acceleration clause. And the, the wording in sub three, the, and this is a quote, unless the charters have paid to the owners a full amount as mentioned in clause 46A1, meant no more than if the owner has served a notice and the charter has paid, the remedies in those paragraphs are not available to the owner, which I, again, I think it's, it, it's a pretty plain reading of, of the provision and then the court also importantly held that that was that interpretation of clause 46 was harmonious with clause 29 
which provides the unqualified right to possession in the event of termination, while the charter's construction was not harmonious with that. And then, then there were some other reasons as well. The, the court went on to, to also, and I'm, I'm now at paragraph 26 here, Callum, went on to find that there were some additional reasons to find in favour of owners on these construction points. Yeah. And so the first one is kind of, uh, is, is this penalty question? And this was you know, raised by charterers saying, well, the, the effect of this regime is punitive because we could, in essence, have paid, you know, half of the vessel before, as part of the, as part of this, um, the sale and purchase. We could then have spent two years paying every single hire payment, every single installment, and then suddenly we could lose the vessel, which is effectively, you know, near enough what happened. And they say, well, the effect of that is punitive because some of these events have defaulter, you know, relatively minor. So this should be struck through as a penalty clause. What I found interesting in this, and I went back to the commercial court decision to kind of read it in a bit more detail, is that effectively the whole concept of a penalty clause could not apply to this contract because there was no secondary obligation that could mm. be struck struck through as a penalty. And just to put some color on that, basically, if you go back to 2015, when there was the, the Cavendish Square Holding and McDessey case, which was kind of twinned with the parking eye decision that went all the way through to the Supreme Court, the, the court held that a penalty clause was something where you have a primary obligation in the contract and upon the failure of one of the parties to comply with that primary obligation, there then arises a secondary obligation. And that secondary obligation is in those punitive kind of unconscionable terms. Then that secondary obligation can be struck through as a penalty. And they said here, there's no secondary obligation that you can point to. So it's not a, it's not a penalty clause. It's a, it's a, it's a regime where your failure allows allows the owner to do certain things. It grants the owner a certain right, but it doesn't give you a secondary obligation, i.e. a secondary obligation to make a payment, which is required for there to be a penalty clause. And I thought that was interesting. I, it, seems a, it seems a slightly odd distinction to draw. You know, if the, if, if the contractual regime itself is punitive, then why does it need to be framed as a primary and secondary obligation? I mean, I, I doubt very much we're going to get more law on this because it's a it's a very recent um, or a relatively recent Supreme Court decision. So probably a while before one goes goes back. But I, f I find that distinction slightly, I f I, well, at least I, f I find it slightly odd that a regime can be punitive, but it can, it can avoid being struck through as a penalty clause because it's not structured in a way where there's a primary and secondary obligation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must admit, I did not go back and look at the Cavendish case for the purpose of, of today's recording, but I do remember it at the time because I, yeah, I, I must've had another penalty case or looking at it at a penalty issue at around that time when it came out and I wasn't convinced, I, I say that with a lot of trepidation given it's a Supreme Court decision, um, about, about the structure of, of this test with the primary obligation, secondary obligation, it just. It felt a bit strained, um, and that may be just, you know, the limits of my, my intellect or something, but trying to fit a number of these clauses into that, you know, that more mechanical framework, I, I found difficult to do when applying it 
in subsequent cases. So, you know, with the Cavendish decision, I then thought, well, okay, what's the primary obligation? What's the secondary obligation? Is this penalty? I, it, that to me seemed difficult and, and much more difficult than, you know, um, the, the other ways of looking at penalty versus liquidated damages clauses where is it a, you know, is it a genuine pre-estimate of the potential losses and, and, and that kind of test, and I'm going off recollection here, but th that kind of assessment where you could say, well, look, the parties at the outset came to a view as to what the losses may be. It may be very generous. It may be, you know, uh, it, it may be bang on, but, but if it was a reasonable pre-estimate or expectation of what those losses were and they agreed to it, then even if it seems harsh after the event, it's not, it's not a penalty, it's, it's LD. And that to me, I've always kind of found a much easier proposition to, to understand and to follow. Yeah. And I think I, I'd need to go back and read it, read it fully, but I, I, I think you're in quite good company on that because I think the Supreme court was fairly split on this question of whether it needed to be a, or whether, whether the penalty clause the law and penalty clauses only bites on a secondary obligation. I think that was a split mm. part of the decision. It, it, this was like 120 page Supreme Court judgment. And I think pretty much everybody had a, everybody on the bench had a crack at, um, writing part of the part of, or, you know, informing part of the decision. So it's slightly hard to piece together who, who went where, but I think that on this point, the, the, the bench was split. I can see, I can see where they're going with it. You know, if you look at the way that most LD provisions and slash penalty clauses work, then often it is that, that structure of you've, you've done some breach and therefore you have to pay this amount of money. And then you have the primary obligation, which is not to do the bad thing. They do the bad thing. And then the second obligation kicks in, which is you then have to pay us this amount of money. And if you can show that that second obligation is unconscionable, then it gets struck through. I think that I can, I can see, I can see how that's a neat analysis. I guess what I struggle with is if, if it's not that situation, but the result of the contractual regime is still creates this unconscionable position where one party suffers a kind of extraordinary loss because of a, a because of a, a breach somewhere, then just because that's structured as being a right that one party has rather than a second obligation, it, it would fall outside of the penalty clause regime. It, it seems slightly odd and it's not something, this is the first time I think I've seen a case where that's, where that question is, has been kind of flagged so clearly. So it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's probably... it's, it's, I struggle a little bit with the, with the concept of that in this case, the owners have a right to repossess the vessel, but there's not some corollary, corollary, I'm not even saying that right. Some accompanying obligation on charters to give back the vessel. Like it's, I suppose it's in the structure of the clause and the way it's set up that it is an option and not an obligation for owners here. But if, if owners decide to take or exercise their right um, to repossess the vessel, that there's not some secondary obligation on the charter is to give it back, you know, and it, arguably in this case, the charter has clearly breached that obligation because it went on to put the vessel outside of owner's reach. It's, mm. it's what, it's why I kind of struggle a little bit with the, 
the primary and secondary obligation concept. Which I, I guess unless kind you, of segues unless I'm missing us on. something. No, I think I think that's right. I think, and and there was the same the same thing. And this is this is now going a little bit off piste into a case I've not read for a while, which is the Cavendish case itself. And the 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 bench from from memory struggled with the same issue there because effectively there was a relatively small breach, probably by MacDessy himself, that then meant that he lost the ability to buy something very cheaply. I think that's basically the the facts. And he said, well, I, you know, I shouldn't have lost my right. I shouldn't have lost my, my right to buy this thing very cheaply because of that small breach that I did, because me losing that right is a penalty. And, mm. and the court ultimately held no, because there's no, there's no penalty obligation. So you can't say it's a penalty if there's, if there's no, nothing you can point to in the contract and say, that is the penalty that, that me being obliged to do this thing is a penalty. What you have instead is that you've lost the right, you've lost the right somewhere, but that's not a secondary obligation. Yeah, in, the, so in, in this case, you know, in this case, I think, Callum, that, you know, where I can, uh, I actually have a lot of sympathy for the owners is that the, we're dealing with a situation where the charter's UBO was listed as, you know, a global terrorist by the US on their, their designation yeah. list. And what, what are the owners supposed to do? They're, they're supposed to try and, you know, continue to be in contractual relations with these companies there's what going to be some artificial separation between mr Mallard and and the companies and the chartering companies and that the owners have to remain in if they want to go you know go down that route that they have to remain in some type of contractual situation with them and, and that's where th this gets explored most in the decision where the court upholds the first instance decisions on the relief against forfeiture and to say yeah. that the charters were not entitled to have that type of relief in this case. And to an extent, I mean, I, I totally agree with, with what you're saying there, that practically speaking, how, how on earth do the, do the owners stay in this arrangement or even try and give credit to charters exactly. for uh, what they've paid so far? Um, exactly. because they, their hands are tied on this. How did they get what paid? I, how how exactly. did they get paid? Yeah, exactly. You know. They're stuck, right? <laughs> yeah, and so all they can exactly. do, and and it makes a lot of sense for the parties in that in that in that context to have agreed this mechanism. And you you yeah. may say, well, actually, looking at it through a different light, if something else happened that was not as serious, then it would create a regime that's punitive. But the the court's not being asked to determine that hypothetical situation. They're trying to they're trying to determine this situation, and they're saying, well, actually, it makes perfect sense that that. You, that the owners may want to just wash their hands of the whole thing, take the vessel and move on. Mm. And it does. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think exactly. And, and, and then the, the other interesting point about this was that uh, the court uh, dealt with whether the charter's misconduct in and in relation to the proceedings precluded them from seeking that type of relief. Yeah, which I think is the old law school unclean hands uh, issue. Yeah. It's an equitable, equitable relief. Exactly, exactly. And there was, the, the, there's a, a catalogue, a lengthy catalogue of defaults yeah. on the part of the charters. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't cover themselves in glory here, to be honest. The, um, and, I, and actually, even at the date of this judgment, it appears that one of the vessels still hasn't been re-delivered back to the owners. No, exactly. It's exactly. a query how they're so, ever going to get yeah. their hands on it. Charter is, um, you know, 
didn't cover themselves with glory in, in how they dealt with all of this. And I, I think, I don't think that was ultimately determinative of the issue. This was, this turned on the construction point under clause 46, but when it comes to the equitable considerations, and you can imagine in, in a different factual situation that the charters may have got more, uh, more mileage in some of these equitable arguments. Yeah, I think that's right. But as it stood that, you know, if you're ignoring the, if you're ignoring the orders of the courts, if you're giving evidence, which is, uh, full of holes and likely untrue. And if, if you have this, this big list of reasons why the court can say, you know, we're, you're not coming to the courts of equity, you're not coming to the court's equitable jurisdiction with clean hands, then you're not going to get equitable relief. And mm. the, the, the court of appeals seemed very happy to uphold the, the first instance judges judge on that. Yeah. And also the, the, I think the only other point I want to really make on this equitable, you know, relief against forfeiture point, and this really goes to a lot of equitable arguments is that you have the procedure, you have unclean hands, that type of doctrine, you know, how do you approach the court and on what basis, um, and how have you acted, uh, in, in the, in the whole equitable scenario. But also you, you then have the, the substance or the, or the merits considerations. And here the judge found on the unclean hands, and we're calling it unclean hands. It's not actually what, what it was described as here, but in weighing the equities on the procedure said that their misconduct pr precluded the charters from getting relief from uh, forfeiture. But then the, the judge didn't have to, but did go on to deal with the merits and uh, the court also looked at those as well. And that was like some of the considerations in there were that the owners were going to get a massive windfall, and this is what the charter is alleged, as a result of this outcome. And that the vessels had increased significantly in value from what they were originally. And this was, yeah, as I say, going to end up meaning that the owners did very well out of the, the scenario. And the court, I, I think, was... Yeah, and maybe it, it was largely because the, the matter had already been decided by this point in time, so it didn't really matter. But I thought the, the evidence cited in the judgment around valuation was a bit light, to be frank. I don't know what your thought was of that, uh, but they said that, you know, there, there seemed to be problems with the main engine, that, that the vessel was not allowed an inspection by the, by, um, the owners that there were, there were a number, again, a number of kind of procedural misconduct type issues in and around getting to the right valuation, which allowed the court to just say, well, you know what, the, the market desktop valuations could be criticized here. And we're not convinced that the owners would make such a significant windfall as was being alleged, as well as the point about one vessels no longer in you know, in, in a reachable state, it's off in Syria and the owners are struggling to get possession of her. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the estimates themselves of the vessel's valuation were pretty broad, you know, what it wasn't as though someone had come to, to a firm landing on the precise value of these vessels. There were desktop analyses that hadn't or couldn't take into effect, into account other issues that had happened with the vessel and some, one of the vessels had certain maintenance problems that would have to be factored in. It, it wasn't a point that seemed to be that persuasively developed and ultimately it wasn't something that needed to be because of the way that the, 
the decision went. But I agree with you on that. Well, yeah, interesting. So look, ultimately the the owners the owners succeeded. The charters failed. Moral of the story is don't get listed as a um, a special specially designated global terrorist. Otherwise, you may lose your ships, or at I'll least keep, put I'll your trade towards them. Yeah, exactly. A salient lessons for us all. So I look, I don't think we'll see this case again going higher, but you know, famous last words and all that. I suspect not. I think there have been a couple that we've seen in the court of appeal that are probably more likely destined for the, to go all the way to the top. I suspect this is a blasphemy of this one, but you never know. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll take the opportunity to ask some questions around the, um, primary and secondary obligation analysis that we discussed. Maybe, maybe. Thank you very much for listening in, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed the episode today. Um, uh, thanks for being with us. And if you've liked it, please, yeah, please like, subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And yeah, feel free to, to share this with anyone in your team or people that you think might be interested. Um, we'll be coming to you with another podcast next Thursday. So until then, take care. See you, Callum. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Luke. Bye.